You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kipolevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. In the Torah itself, in, in uh, Parshat Pinchas, Moshe comes to Hashem and says to Hashem, can you please appoint the next leader? Moshe was told that he's not going to lead the Jewish people into Eretz Yisrael. Someone else is going to take over. And Moshe is worried for the Jewish people. So Hashem says to him, this is in Perak Chavzayim Pasig Yud Chet, Vayomer Hashem El Moshe, Kach Lecha Et Yehoshua Ben Nun, Take Yehoshua Ben Nun, Ish Asher Ruach Bo, Someone who has the spirit, who has the strength to handle the Jewish people, Vesamachta et yadcha alav, and you should lean your hands on him. And according to most interpretations, it doesn't necessarily mean that Moshe should put his hands literally over the head of Yehoshua, even if you would symbolically. That's not what it's about. It's a metaphorical smicha. It means that I'm passing along the leadership from the previous generation to the next generation. This process is because the Torah uses the word v'samachta ed yadcha alav, and you should lean on him. That's why the process of conferring leadership role onto someone in the next generation is called smicha. Moshe gives smicha to Yahushua. Yahushua to the Zikanim, the Zikanim to, to the Nevi'im, etc., etc. Every generation... Whoever was the, um, the uh, leader of that generation would confer, would give smicha to the leaders of the next generation. Now, why do we need smicha? What is the point of it? Smicha is a process by which you are authorized to act as a member of the Sanhedrin of the Jewish court. Without smicha, you have no right, because we believe that your, uh, your authority over the Torah comes from Sinai. It goes all the way back to Sinai. So you have to have permission that goes all the way back to Sinai. So if your teacher gave you smicha, and their teacher gave them smicha, and their teacher gave them smicha, all the way back to Moshe, essentially you are given the authority, you're vested by the authority of of Moshe Rabbeinu, as he received it from Sinai, to, to be an authority in the laws of the Torah. Which, which laws require smicha? For you to call the rabbi and to say, Hey rabbi, is this okay? Am I allowed to do this? Am I allowed to do that? And the rabbi says yes or no. That doesn't require smicha of the biblical sense. Right, that, what we're talking about here is to be a member of the Sanhedrin, to be able to judge capital cases, to be able to judge important cases, and we'll see soon um, examples of the kinds of things which you need smicha for. At some point, at some point, it's really not clear at which point smicha ended, which means it did not get passed along. Something happened. So what exactly happened? So in order to understand this, I'm going to read to you a Gemara in Sanhedrin. This is a Gemara in Sanhedrin, P. 
page 14, and I'm just going to translate. Um, Rav Yehuda said in the name of Rav, Zachor Otoha Ishlatov. We must remember a certain person for the good. The Rabbi Yehuda Ben Bava Shemo, his name was Rabbi Yehuda Ben Bava. Because if it wasn't him, if it wasn't for him, we would have lost our ability to be proper judges in Israel. Why? Pam Achat one time, Gazra Malchut Gzera Al Yisrael. The Romans, all the way back in ancient times, the Romans banned. They made a rule, Shikol HaSomech Yehareg. Anyone who gives smicha to the next generation will be killed. V'chol HaNismach Yehareg. Anyone who receives smicha will be killed. Okay, now you think that this is a deterrent. The Romans went further than that. V'ir Shesomchimba Tichareg. Not only, if you do smicha, this is a Roman decree over the Jewish people, if you do smicha, we will not only kill the person who's the somech and the musmachim, we are going to kill the entire city. Utchumin shesomchem mehem ye akaru, and even the vicinity, the suburbs. Any, if, if somebody, now, why are the Romans banning a rabbinical procedural technicality because they understood that without the rabbinical authority that goes all the way back to Sinai the Jewish people are left compromised smicha is an essential part of the running of the of the governing of the Jewish people of their self-governing so they banned it Ma'asa Yehuda ben, Yehuda ben Bava what did Rabbi Yehuda ben Bava do? He went out in the middle of nowhere. He went out into the middle of nowhere, so he wasn't risking the city. And v'samach sham chamisha zekenim, he gave five students, he gave them smicha. Rabbi Meir, Rabbi Yehuda, Rabbi Shimon, Rabbi Yossi, and Rabbi Elazar ben Shamua. Some say Rabbi Nechemia was also there. The Romans found them. And he said to them, you run, I'm going to stay here. And they said to him, Rabbi, what's going to be with you? He said, don't worry about me. I'm going to be okay. You guys run for your life. And the, the Talmud tells us, the Talmud tells us that the uh, Rabbi Yudah Mambava was, was killed when the Romans found him. And the, the Talmud uses the term, they put 300 spears in him. Now, the, Rabbi Yehuda ben Bava risked his life. I should say that. Rabbi Yehuda ben Bava gave his life in order to maintain the continuity of smicha. Because the Jewish people needed it for their survival. And because of him, smicha would go on at least another few hundred years. But eventually, the pressure coming from the Romans, from others, to try to stop the process of smicha, because if they felt like they could cut into the um, authority of the rabbis, they felt like they could finally end the Jewish people. And so, at some point, somewhere between the year, let's say, 300 and the year 1000, smicha completely disappeared. Now let's set all that aside and let's move forward 
more than a thousand years. Kulam Makirim, Kulam Yodim, everybody knows the year 1492. Except for the Jewish people, the year 1492 means more than just Columbus going on his first voyage um, on his search for a faster route to India and instead finding the West Indies and the Americas. 1492 for us means something different because 1492 is the year that we were expelled from Spain. And it's a really big deal because the Jewish people were centered in Spain. The Sfarad, um, um, the the um, entire Iberian Peninsula, but Spain more so, was the place, was the center of where the Jewish people who were in diaspora in Galut, that's where they were. Obviously, there was still Rabbanim in the Middle East, um, not so much in uh, um, in other places, but uh, um, certainly, but in 1492, the Jewish people were very much centered in Spain, but the Spanish decided that their, um, the presence of the Jews is offensive to them and to their religion. And so they gave the, jo- the Jews a choice, either to be baptized and to convert to Christianity or to leave. And as we know, many of them chose to be baptized and pretend that um, they were um, meaning it and they pretended to be Christians, but actually they were um, trying their best to live as Jews. Many of them just baptized and unfortunately gave up their Judaism, but many, many Jews left. Now, where did they go? All over the place. Basically, you can, you can go to every country along the Mediterranean, from Italy to Greece, Salonika, a lot of people went to, to Turkey, um, Morocco, uh, Algeria, um, Egypt, oh, yeah, they went, and of course, many went to Eretz Yisrael. And this is why in the 1500s, all of a sudden, all of a sudden in the 1500s, Eretz Yisrael is filled with Jews and rabbis and leaders and great people. It was, it was a a, I wouldn't say a renaissance, but it was, it was a complete overhaul of what life in Israel had been pre-expulsion and post-expulsion. Uh, not everyone fared the same way. Because, for example, in 1492, the Jews were expelled from Spain. Portugal said to many Jews, you can come here. We're not like the Spanish. But it was a trick. Because they came there, and five years later, the Portuguese said, well, Actually, we were just, um, you know, we, we were just going to give you a little bit of time, but now you have to convert. And they didn't even give the people choice, choices to leave, so they, they forcefully baptized everyone uh, in, in 1497. Many Jews tried to escape, but as you know, because there were so many crypto-Jews, Anusim is what we call them, and uh, they were unfortunately referred to by the by the Christians and by some Jews as Moranos, which is a really not nice term, which basically means swine or pig, 
And um, they were referred to by Christians that way because the Christians were upset with these people who were pretending to be Jews, but they, re I'm sorry, pretending to be Christians, but they were really trying to live as Jews. And of course, the Jews resented these people who made the wrong choice. And instead of leaving, they state that they can keep their homes and their businesses, and they should have left, even if it meant having nothing. So, so um, they were, these people were in a very difficult situation. The, the Anusim, um, who, who were, and in, in, in Spain, because the monarchy realized that so many Jews had done this, what they did was they introduced the Inquisition. The Inquisition was a group of religious extremists whose job it was to find crypto-Jews, find people who were pretending to uh, be Christians but were really Jewish. And this was, we, if, you, if you've ever seen, if you've ever gone there, if you've ever seen the torture chambers, if you've ever seen, you know, you wonder, you have to wonder how, uh, I, this is, I'm not trying to be, uh, so you have to wonder how, like the Portuguese forcefully converted us, like why is there no one in the world who's talking about any reparations for the Jewish people on, on, on these accounts. I'm not asking for any. I'm just saying it's strange that no one is doing that. And like we're talking about, those people have been oppressed. These people have been oppressed. We've been oppressed. Uh, let me tell, let me, I can spend the rest of the class just telling you all the things that happened to us in the 11th century and in the 12th century and in the 13th century and in the 14th century and just keep going all the way into the 20th century with the Holocaust and it's just, it's incredible how we've always been oppressed and attacked and brought down, people always trying to kill us and for some reason there isn't that same level of outcry. Um, you know, go figure. But but in in the backdrop of this, when when the when the Inquisition starts to take power, now the Jews are in trouble. The Jews living and so they began a process of trying to escape. And it's very, very um difficult to explain the complexities of how difficult it would have been to escape and what you were risking if you try to escape. Because for the Christians, once you've, come, you, once you've been baptized, to then act as a Jew in any way was, 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 you were not just liable for the death penalty, you were liable for death by torture. And, I, I wish I could, wouldn't say this, but, but and worse. I, what's worse than torture? And look at those machines they had. So, but at the same time, there's all these Jews who are coming and escaping. Where do they go when they escape? To Eretz Yisrael. And here is where the, you know, the, the difficulty begins. Because how do you think, I want you to think about this for a second, how do you think the reaction of the people who walked away in 1492. They left behind their houses and their jobs and everything they owned. They walked away and they went to the land of Israel. And they watched as their fellow Jews stayed and kept their jobs and, and stayed in their homes and were baptized. And now, 20 years later, they want to show up in Israel and they want to uh, 
they want to live life like a normal Jew. Yes. I, I thought I thought the, the only way to North Africa and uh, Portugal and uh, Mediterranean country. I did not know they came to Israel. Yeah, yeah. I I've, I always say this, and I think it's important for everyone to think about this. Since we went into exile, in all the way back, and I'm talking all the way back, in, in the year 70 and then the year 130, you know, when, when the Romans first attacked us and sent us into exile, since then, the, number, the two biggest causes of Jews moving back to Israel is the expulsion from Spain and the Holocaust. There were other times when Jews moved, but like the big movements, and unfortunately that's what it seems like it takes for us to, to, to um, rebuild is, you know, these kinds of tragedies. So, so this is going to be, the, this is gonna be uh, what I'm calling the backdrop, because you have to know all this to understand what we are about to see, which is a big, big dispute, a big machloket, between the Rabbanim on the subject of smicha. But if you don't understand the volatility of what was going on at that time, you can't truly appreciate everything that was happening. So, here's one of the issues. Everybody knows that, that um, there are certain prohibitions in the Torah which if you transgress them, if you are over on these prohibitions, you are chayev karet. What does karet mean? It means death by the hands of God. There are certain sins. However, if the beitin, shalmata, the beitin below, gives you a punishment, you are patur, the beitin shalmala, in the beitin above. That's the rule, as the Talmud says. Which means, and speaking mamash, that's, that's what it says. If someone does something that's chayv karet, let's say he has a prohibited relationship with someone he shouldn't, that's chayv karet. He's supposed to die by the hands of God. If the beitin will give him malkut, he will be free of the chayv karet. Now, some of the people who came from Spain they said, yes, we know we did the wrong thing. We know we did the wrong thing. We should have come with you. So here's what we're suggesting. Give us Malkut. Give us Malkut. Give us Makot. In the Beit Din. And we will atone for our sins because they wanted to be accepted by the community and not be seen as what we like a fair weather fans or people jumping on a. It, it, they wanted to be accepted, and even though yes, they did a lot of terrible things while they were pretending to be Christians, but they wanted to receive atonement. But in order to give Malkut, what do you need? You need Beit Din Musmachim. You need Smicha. Today, we don't have that smicha, and we'll explain why it got lost, but, but the, um, the, the, um, in order to give malkut, you need smicha. But you don't have smicha because it was cut off. So here's where the controversy begins. There is... Um, 
There is a Rambam. It always comes back to the Rambam. But this is a Rambam in Hilchot Sanhedrin. The Rambam writes, and I quote, Nirin li hadvarim. These are the words of the Rambam. Nirin li hadvarim, I think. Sheim hiskimu kol hachachamim shebe'eret Yisrael limnot dayanim v'lismoch otan harei elu smuchin. The Rambam writes, and it doesn't seem like there's any source for the Rambam, because the Rambam says, Nirin li hadvarim. And everybody knows that when the Rambam says, Nirin li, he is giving his own opinion. That means there's no source for it. The Rambam says that Im Yaskimu Israel, if all the Chachamim get together and they put smicha on someone, that person is musmach, and so we can reinitiate smicha. He continues. Im smicha. So then why the rabbis so concerned about smicha? The answer is Lefishi Yisrael Mufuzarim. Because the Jewish people are in exile and we're so dispersed. And also, and this goes to teach you, the E Efshar Sheyaskimu Kulan. Now, I don't know if, what, if the Rambam means that because we are so spread out, therefore we can't agree on one thing, or it's two problems. Number one, that we're too spread out. And number two, you're going to get all the rabbis. In, amongst the Jewish people to agree on one thing? Never happening. Okay, that's, that's the Rambam. Now, here's the thing. If you went to Tzfat in the year 1530, you would have seen a collection of rabbis in one place that the world had not seen for centuries, and probably would never ever see again. If anyone's been to the Beit Hakvarot in Tzfat, have you been there? It's in the names there. It's Mamash All Stars. The greatest Rabbanim in the world were basically in Tzfat. How did they end up in Tzfat? That's a whole other subject. Um, you know, the the concept of Tzfat is a very um, interesting because it doesn't really have. Um, too much in terms of a biblical source for it, but but for some reason all these gedolim ended up in Svat, and the biggest amongst amongst them was Rabbi Yaakov Beirav, also known as the Rebeirav, and everyone seemed to understand that the Rebeirav is the Gadol Hador, he's the greatest Talmud Chacham of the generation. So the Rebeirav suggested. You know, that maybe if we gather all the Rabbanim from Tzvat and from the areas around it, and they will all agree that Rabbi, Rabbi Yaakov Beirav is the Gadol Hador, and they are Somechim. And by that process, they're going to reinitiate Smicha. And then once. Rabbi Yaakov Beirav has smicha, he can then give smicha to all of his students, and then we can go back to the way that it was before, and we can give malkot, we can give lashes to the Anusim, and then all the Jewish people will live happily ever after.
he's not the first rabbi to try something um, radical and creative and new, and he was, will not, was not and will not be the last rabbi, but this ran into some very, very big issues. What are the issues? So, here's what happens. They all get together, and I'm going to avoid the technicalities of how it was accomplished. All the Rabbanim from Tzfat and all around, they gather together, and they give smicha to Rabbi Yaakov Be'erav. And he then gives smicha to four of his students, Rab Moshe Mitrani, known as the Mabit, Rab Moshe Kurdviro, known as the Ramak, and you may know him as the author of the Tomer Devorah, Rabbi Yosef Sagis, and the most famous of these rabbis, Rabbi Yosef Cairo, the author of the Shulchan Aruch. So these great rabbis all received smicha from him. And then... And here's where it gets sticky. The Rabbanim then sent a letter to um, the Rabbanei Yerushalayim, who the leader amongst them was Rabbi Levi Ibn Chaviv, and he's known as the Maral Bach. And they said to the Maral Bach, if you come to Tzfat, we would like to give you smicha as well. Okay. Yeah. I, w- I want to stop here and, and talk about this just for a second. Up until now, when we talked about machlokot and disputes amongst the Rabbanim, we were talking about halachic, theoretical, um, intellectual discussions. But as you know, that's not the way machlokot always go. Sometimes, when two people argue over a policy even if it's a non, um, you know, not political, non, not controversial, sometimes a machloket can get personal. And that's what I want everyone to think about, because that's part of what I'd like to discuss today. Because this dispute is going to get nasty. And when I say nasty, I mean nasty. And you've all seen this. You've all seen people who start off debating over something simple, like this is the way something should be done, this is the way something should be done. All of a sudden it becomes politicized, it becomes about the principle, it becomes about other things, and the next thing you know, people are firing and slinging um, mud balls at, at each other. It's, it's just, it, it, it can get really, really bad. And one of those examples is what we are about to see. So, brace yourselves. So, number one, the Maral Bach, Rablevi Ibn Khabib, refused the smicha. He said, no thank you. Why? Number one, he disagreed with the Ribe Rav's reading of the Rambam. And he lays out in a very long response, uh, and we, you know, this could take years if we would read the full texts of all the letters that went back and forth between the Rabbanei Yerushalayim and the Rabbanei Tzfat. And, and it's, it's unfortunate because I see so much of, of the same kind of attitude even today on some level, um, sometimes, occasionally, I'm not trying to say anything negative about anyone, between the Rabbanei Yerushalayim and the Rabbanei Bnei Brak of today. This is between the Rabbani Yerushalayim and the Rabbani Tzfat. So number one, the Maral Bach says, nope, 
No thank you, I don't want your smicha. Number one, because I don't think that you are reading the Rambam correctly. And if you would read the Rambam correctly, you would see that the Rambam is not really suggesting that you can reinstitute smicha from out of nowhere. Number two, number two, you're doing this because these people want malkut, because the people want lashes. They don't need it. All they need to do is teshuva. Now, why were they wanting it? They weren't just wanting it for teshuva. They also wanted it to be accepted by the, their communities. Right? It wasn't just about, about their own repentance, but they wanted people to stop treating them like, like they were traitors to God. That they were, um, that they were um, evil people. They wanted re- to receive atonement. But they said, no, it's da'ilahem um, um, b'tshuva, it's, it's, it's enough that they do tshuva. And the third, here's where the politics begins, Rabbanitzvat, who gave permission to the Rabbanitzvat to call themselves the Gedole Hador and to establish the rules and to make themselves into the, into the top um, tier of, of the rabbis? Where do they get the rights to do it without the Chachmei Yerushalayim? Yerushalayim is the Ir Ve'em, the primary city, it's the capital city of, of the Jewish people. And the Rabbanim living in Yerushalayim are always the Gedolim. And who gave permission to the Rabbanim Tzvat to initiate a process without getting permission from the Chachmei Yerushalayim? Now, now, I think by now, everyone knows exactly where this is going. Because you've seen this process. Because if you would have just stopped right there and said, you know, I don't think that that's what the Rambam means. Okay, he disagrees with the technical process. And then he goes a little bit further and says, eh, you know, the people... This question... Yes. Wasn't it a mistake by the Rabbanim of Tzfat? They invited all the regional Rabbanim. They should have included the Rabbanim of Yerushalayim. Yeah, yeah. Because if they were the majority, and everybody would be included, maybe there won't be so much antagonism. Yeah, I... Um, you know, hindsight, retrospect, absolutely... If, if we could go back in time and we could whisper to the Ribe Rav and say to him, not only should you do this because it's the right thing to do, not to make them feel bad, but also your smicha is going to fail if you don't bring everyone together. Things may have been differently. But, but and I, I'm going to emphasize this point. We do not need to believe that our rabbis are infallible in this way. We believe that, you know, so I, I, I've mentioned this before many times, but I'll say it again anyway. You know, so someone once said to me uh, about a certain statement in the Talmud, and I said, no, 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 that's not what it means, that's not what it is. It, this is actually what, what it means. And he said to me, oh, that's just the rabbis trying to interpret themselves to make themselves look good. So I talked about this in a few classes ago. The rabbis did not try to make themselves look good. If anything, the rabbis recorded in the Talmud the kind of stuff that we would never want revealed about, about ourselves. 
because they recorded everything. This is not, in, in some cases they interpret it, maybe you would interpret it differently. But the rabbis were never trying to whitewash anything. But still, in this case, you've got, if we could, this story is not a, is not a nice story. And I didn't even get to the nasty part yet. But this is not a nice story, and you should know that there are stories of our rabbis that involve holy, good, righteous people who get involved in this nasty kind of fighting. And it's, it's difficult to understand, but it doesn't make us believe that they were lesser people. On the contrary, we still, we still consider the Maral Bach, the, the Beit Yosef, the Rabbi Yosef Cairo, the Rebbe Rav, we still consider them to be giants, much better people than us. But somehow, no matter how great you are, you get dragged into this stuff. And that's something that you should think about also, even today. When you have, sometimes you'll be like, oh, this Rob said something, and you know, he said, make this public statement, and it doesn't seem like an appropriate statement to say. And then I've known, some of you may have at some point wondered, like, why do people follow this rabbi, if he could say such a statement, right? Everyone's thought that at some point. It happens. People say things, things get out of hand, we don't define someone by one action. Now, you might say, well, if he's such a holy and great person, then we should hold him to a higher level of accountability, perhaps, but nobody's perfect. And that's, we're not ashamed of that, and here's where the story goes. So, in terms of the first point, I remember there were three points that the Maral Bach disagreed with. Number one, it was that he, he didn't feel that that's what the Rambam, the proper reading of the Rambam was. Number two, he felt like the Chosrim, of the Anusim, those who are returning, it's enough for them to do teshuva, they don't need the lashes. And number three, as we said, he didn't agree that, uh, that the Rabbanei Tzfat are considered Kol Chachmei Yisrael. Who gave you that? that right, right, those were the three points. The response that came back from the Ribe Rav was also on three levels. Number one, number one, in terms of the Rambam, he has a very long explanation where he proves that that is what the Rambam meant. Number two and number three, okay, I'm, I'm going to share this with you, but again, let's, let's, let's be open in our understanding. There's another issue here, which is that whenever we see great upheaval in the world, the, it is always a reason for why the, um, those who are, especially those of very strict religious observance, um, or, or even just strict religious observance, they will always see it as a sign of the coming of Mashiach. Whenever you've got some big upheaval, they're always like, at, at, kumt Mashiach, that's it, he's coming very soon. 1492, there was so, could you imagine, they just, they, People were still recovering from the invention of the printing press in uh, 1440. The Gutenberg uh, uh, printing press where they had the movable type. And this was, this was, according to some, the greatest invention of all time. There's some debate over that. But, but it's up there. 1492, a whole new hemisphere is discovered. Not a new country or a new island. An entire new hemisphere. The world is... is 
in, in upheaval. The Jews are all over the place. Obviously, there's still wars going on. People are trying, traveling all over the world. And they come to Eretz Yisrael. There's all this talk about Mashiach is coming at any moment. And so part of what people were seeing was that the reintroduction of Smicha was also a kind of heralding of the return to the old days of the Beit HaMikdash with the Sanhedrin and so it's kind of like preparing for the coming of Mashiach. Okay, now, I want you to, um, I, I'm going to try to say this carefully, but I may not say it properly. One of the points that the Ribe Rav says to the Maral Bach, and let me give you the background first. The, Ribe, um, the Rabbi Yaakov Be Rav is born in 1474 in Spain. When he's 18 years old, his family leaves Spain in 1492, and they go straight to Fez, which is in Morocco. At the age of 18, because of Rabbi Yaakov Beirav, he becomes like the, one of the chief rabbis in Fez at the age of 18. He was, he was unbelievable. But um, the other rabbi, meaning the Rabach, was born in 1480, also in the Iberian Peninsula, either Spain or Portugal, and then in 1497, the Maral Bach, the Rav of Yerushalayim, was one of those people who was forcefully baptized by the Portuguese government in 1497 before he would be able to escape and make it to Eretz Israel. So at one point... And I, I apologize, but that's what the story goes. At one point, the Ribe Rav inserts in one of his letters and says, maybe the reason why you're opposing Smicha is because you underwent baptism at the age of 17. What's he trying to say? So maybe he's saying to him, the reason why you're opposing it is because either, number one, you yourself were influenced by your Christian baptism, that it's making you less desireful of bringing about the Jewish redemption. And that's why you are fighting this. And also, maybe the reason why you're fighting this, now he doesn't say these words, but this is the way that it's interpreted, which is the problem, is, is that this is the way it was read, as if he was saying, the reason why you're opposing Semicha by these people is because you don't want them to have to get malkut and lashes because then you'll have to get lashes because you yourself were an anus now what are your thoughts was that necessary is there a real point in other words it sounds like he's presenting an argument is that okay to say to someone if, you, if the Ribe Rav really felt that maybe that was a reason yeah, you could think about this from the following angle and say maybe, maybe the Ribe Rav was concerned that the Maral Bach was not being true to himself. In other words, you're saying that it's because you read the Rambam differently or you're saying it's because we didn't include the Rabbanei Yerushalayim. But are you sure that that's your reason? Maybe you're really affected by, by your um, short-lived but meaningful um, significant, not meaningful, um, conversion to Christianity.
at that point, as you've probably guessed, everything escalates so terribly that the Ribe Rav is sought after by the government because someone told the, um, the Ottomans that, that the Ribe Rav was trying to reinstitute the Jewish monarchy. And so he had to flee to Damascus where it was safer from, from, from the authorities of, of Eretz Yisrael. That's how bad it gets, that one of the Rabbanim is running for his life. This, would, this fight would go on. Every individual, every rabbi wrote a book about it, wrote this about it, they wrote a kuntres, they wrote a thing. Everyone got involved. It, and it broke the Jewish people in half, split between the Chachmei Yerushalayim and the Chachmei Tzfat. This would lead eventually to the point where the entire process would fall away and smicha is lost. What we have today, when, the, when a ra- rabbi has smicha today, it's just a piece of paper I have in my drawer that says, you know, that I learned this and this, and because of that I'm a rabbi. That's just an institutional graduation diploma. Relative. It's not the smicha of Moshe Misinai. And that was lost because the dispute seemingly was mishandled. And that's something that we, we have to think about. Again, this is very different than the ones we learned about before. The ones we learned about before were theoretical, intellectual discussions, and here is where it gets political, it gets personal, and it gets nasty. And the question that I'm asking, and I'm going to bring this question up again, is why did it go there? Why does it go there? Why is it that you have Rabbanim who are tzaddikim? I'm not just... um, These Rabbanim, they were tzaddikim. If you came to them and you said to them, you know, I want to talk, they would listen to you, they would show you a smiling countenance. These were nice people. These were mamash tzaddikim. How does it go from here to there, how do good people, and you'll tell me maybe they weren't good people. They were, because good people get caught up in these fights. And the question is, how does that happen? So, please feel free to offer up. I'm going to make some suggestions, but feel free to interrupt at any point with any of these uh, um, issues. Number one, is there is a concept of of machloket um, l'shem shemayim, which we usually think of being a positive thing when someone is fighting l'shem shemayim, but there is also a negative element to a machloket l'shem shemayim, which is that when people feel that they are on the side of truth, it gives them a sense that they are meant to subdue and force the other side to accept their opinion, even if it means using inappropriate terms for their own good. That's very important. Because when, when people say nasty things about someone in a fight, then they don't think that they're saying nasty things to hurt that person. They think that they're saying nasty things to help that person realize how wrong they are. And I'm helping the person. And I'm doing a favor to the person. 
by explaining to them just exactly how wrong they are. Because they're going to wake up and realize. Every, everyone experience this at some point in your life? Where you're absolutely convinced if you just use the right words and the right argument and you say it in a strong enough way that the person will be convinced. How frustrating is it when you then sit down with the other person and you give them your whole Megillah, your Joshua that you prepared for them and their mind is not changed? Kind of surprising to us. But that's the way the world works. But sometimes we feel like we've got to move the person. Right? The person's stuck. And I've got to unwedge them from their place. How do you unwedge something that's stuck? You stick something inside and you try to force it out. So I'm going to use an insult I'm going to use a strong term in order to push someone. So in this case, the Ripe Rav feels like this is his life's mission. He's going to bring back Semicha and the world is going to be a better place. Why is the Maral Bach, why is your Levi, Ibn Khabib, giving them such a hard time about this? What's the point? Why cause trouble? Okay, so we didn't ask the Rabbani Yerushalayim. Let it go. Why not focus on what's more important? Which is that we've got Semicha back. So what he felt like was that there was something wrong, something missing from the Maral Bach's personality that was, that was like he had a Yetzir Hara. So there's got to be some negative influence inside the heart of the, Ma, of the Maral Bach which is making him act this way. Which is why he wanted to point it out. Right? You're, you're following me? He wants to point out to the Maral Bach what might be the darkness, the, the poison in his heart, which is stopping him from accepting what could essentially be the fixing of the world. So he, he's trying to do him a favor by saying, remember, once upon a time you converted, and that's gotta, you were baptized, and that's got to have an effect on you, and think about it. Maybe, maybe, maybe you should submit to the Rabbanet Sfat, because maybe there's something inside of you that's misleading you, and if you let it go, that will be your fixing. So when someone insults someone because they believe that this insult will do the person a favor, not only does that generally speaking not work, but it actually becomes a bigger insult than if you had just given the person the insult. Because the Maral Bach is the chief rabbi of Yerushalayim. He's the chief rabbi of Yerushalayim. And you're telling the chief rabbi of Yerushalayim that the reason why he opposes a certain halachic ruling is because he's, a, he's still got the, the trinity, you know, making noise in his heart? Is that, that's what's being said? It's interesting that he wanted to give him smichut before even though he knew that he was baptized at the age of 17. So maybe the rabbi of Jerusalem didn't believe he knew that he was racist toward him. And that's why... Yeah, I, I, I think that's a wonderful point. A wonderful point. And I'll tell you why. Because as you know, these, the Ribe Rav, the Beit Yosef, these are the people that left. And you know, I, I hate to say this, but it's so true, is that people, the, the Maranos, as they were referred to inappropriately, or crypto-Jews Anusim, 
as we refer to them, these secret Jews, as much as the Jewish community that did leave resented them, it was never as much as their own guilt. And so they were seeing racism and persecution, and they were seeing hatred and resentment even in places where they didn't exist. They assumed every time they walked into shul, they assumed they walk into the Beit Knesset, they assumed that everyone was looking at them and thinking, you don't belong here. And that's what happens to, to people who carry that kind of guilt. And it wasn't all of their own doing. There were some things that were said by the people in the community that weren't nice. So when you mix the, mis- the maltreatment together with people's own guilty they had done some terrible things like they'd gone to church and they they prayed at the church and they they took part in in the in the traditions of a different religion and they 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 didn't keep kosher they didn't keep shabbat you know there's all there's a lot of beautiful stories about the jews who who are living in secret in spain but there's also a lot of not such beautiful stories and so i think you're i think you're absolutely right to a certain degree the Marabach was taking for granted that he was being looked down on by the Chachmei Tzfat, who were these Rabbanim who left in 1492 and didn't. So they, and maybe he read that in their words, maybe he was just thinking it himself. We don't know exactly, but it's clear that that feeling from Jew to Jew was was what brought this all down and caused this machloket. And I, again, I'm going to say it, not, not only because of the way that the um, former crypto-Jews were being treated, but because of what they assumed people thought about them. And even though, and I think you make a wonderful point, that the Ribe Rav was willing to confer smicha on, on the Marabach, but by doing that, you're also demanding of the Maral Bach that he accept that the Ribe Rav is the leading rabbi. That the Chachme, in other words, the, this would be an admission by the Chachme Yerushalayim that the Chachme Tzvat are the greater authority. This, it's, it's a very, it's a very complicated situation. And like I said, it gets nasty. And this isn't the only nastiness that was there. Again, if we're, if we're at the point where someone, and this, this is, I wish I could spend more time talking about this. Maybe we'll save it for a future class. But the idea that what happens is when two Rabbanim get into a fight, the Rabbanim, they have certain limits or boundaries of respect. In other words, you never have, at least I'm not aware of any such dispute where one rabbi walked up to the house of one of the other rabbis and, you know, and punched him in the face. But, but, but the followers of the rabbanim, the followers of the rabbanim, they don't have these proper boundaries. So what happens is when my rabbi gets insulted by some other rabbi, I feel like it's my job to be mekaneh kinat Hashem you know, to, to stand up in vengeance and in zealousness for the sake of God and for the sake of goodness in the world and to, 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 to start trouble. And we've had too many of these, but that's how you get to the point where someone reported to the, to the, 
to the Turks that that the rabbi in Tzfat is trying to reinstitute Malchut, Jewish sovereignty. And that's why he had to flee and run away. He wasn't trying to reinstitute Malchut. That means that some Jew, I'll say that again, it was a Jew who went to the authorities and reported on him. Why? Because he probably thought, my rabbi was insulted. I have to defend the honor of my rabbi. And the other rabbi who insulted my rabbi should die for this. He should go to jail or worse. And so I'm going to report him and I'm going to do the world a favor. Where do we go there? And I really, it's a really curious thing. It's not a Jewish thing. It happens everywhere. But we would think that as Jews, we would, we would know a little bit better based on all that we've gone through. But for a Jew to go running to the authorities and to introduce some, the, the government who's, who's not looking out for the best interest of the Jewish people, certainly not in the 1500s in the Middle East. So how do you go there? How does it happen? One of the points that we learn from this story is how quickly things escalate. It's so horrible. It starts off small, tiny, and then it explodes. That's what happens with Machlokot. They explode in, and they become disgusting. It becomes so sick that everyone, everyone has a bad taste in their mouth. And not only that, and here's the outcome of it, the result is that nobody, neither side, can respect the original issue anymore. Who wants to get smicha after that happened? Who wants to be part of this process after it went from being some spiritual, dreamlike idea of reinstituting smicha to becoming a point of mudslinging? What, what rabbi wants the smicha anymore? So, Within a generation, the smicha is gone. I, I, I know you, um, that the, um, you were suggesting before that maybe if, if people would have been nicer, it would have... Yeah, there are a lot of things that could have gone differently. And I've heard people say that, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's min hashemayim. You know what min hashemayim means? Min hashemayim is another way of, of saying, eh, it was meant to be, or it was not meant to be. It's true. It's true that maybe it wasn't meant to be. But even if it's not meant to be, it's still only not going to happen if people don't make the right choices and the right decisions. And, and, and so when you've got people who respond in this way, again, not just the Rabbanim, because the Rabbanim were very subtle in their statements to each other, but the individuals, the regular people, the followers who got involved, it became nasty. And finally, and we'll finish with this um, as the final point, unless someone wants to bring up any other issues. Um, finally, the last point is that the Rabbanim are not safe from this challenge. Just because someone spent their entire life studying Torah and performing the mitzvot, and even if someone is a big tzaddik, all the individuals here, everyone, that, every name that I've mentioned, they were all tzaddikim. And I don't just mean tzaddikim because they knew their Torah. Or, and that they were great mekubalim. That's not just what I mean. The stories of their lives are stories of heroics. 
Every one of them overcame all kinds of difficulties. The Maral Bach was baptized in 1497. Do you know what it means to leave and to escape from Portugal in 1497 after a forced baptism? If he would have been found by the Christians, they would have, as I mentioned earlier, tortured him and worse. But the Jews had underground um, railroads. We had, well, they wouldn't have called underground railroads yet because the railroads had not been invented. But they, they had um, secret escape paths and they managed to escape. And so every one of these people was a hero. But we don't need, not only don't we want, we don't need our rabbis to be infallible, to be above these things, to, be, um, to never be able to be caught up in these political um, um, disputes that becomes too personal for our own comfort. That's just the way the world works. That's the way humanity works. And this teaches us, going all the way back to the Torah, whenever you see a dispute, take a look at the dispute between Moshe and Korach. That's pretty nasty, right? At the end, it gets so bad that Moshe has to ask God to open up the earth and swallow up Korach v'adato. That's how bad it gets. Does that mean that Korach was not a good person? It doesn't mean that. And so even if you do see someone who falls into this trap, it's, it's just a human thing. And that's the way that it's always been. Although, I have to say, it doesn't always get this nasty in terms of personal attacks. And it's really not even clear um, you know, exactly who was meaning what as much as people were reading into it. Machlokot have two, there are two kinds of machlokot. There are good kinds of machlokot, and there are bad, bad kinds of machlokot. A good kind of machlokot is when two people sit around together and have a discussion about anything, and they can respect each other. And then you've got a bad kind of machlokot, which is where people are arguing over stupid, silly things. You... Um, yesterday you did this, well you did this the day before, you did that the day before. It's, it's a silly argument. Both, um, one is good, the other one is bad. But neither one is as dangerous as a machlokot that mixes the two. When you have a legitimate issue that you have to actually dispute, and you mix it together with all this personal stuff, it brings everything down and it brings everybody down. And unlike the other disputes, and Bezrat Hashem, the dispute we'll see um, next time, which remains a little less personal, this became very, this became very personal, and because of it, it ruined all the individuals involved and ruined the entire process. Uh, if you have any questions, we'll take questions. But that is a lesson that we need to all learn. Yes. I think it's the beauty of Judaism. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode.